بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وبعد. Begin in the name of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, the Creator of the universe, and we send salutations on His Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's a great honor and a privilege, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here to talk about what is one of my favorite subjects, which is the life of Muhammad, peace be upon him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I have written two books on the life of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam as well. Um, one is called Leadership Lessons from the Life of Rasulullah, which means the Messenger of Allah. And the other one is called Sira is the Answer. Sira is the Arabic term which means biography. And uh, in Islamic theology, it's a term that is used both generally as well as in particular relating to the biography of Muhammad peace be upon him so when you hear the word sirah usually it means the life of the prophet but it could also be used in its general meaning which is biography which means life of so it could be sirah it could be your sirah my sirah anybody's sirah the um, the way I want to uh, with your with your cooperation and permission and feel free to change it around if you like the way I'd like to run this is that I'll speak for some time and uh, then around four o'clock we'll take a break uh, because we need to pray the afternoon prayer which comes in the time actually comes in around 10 past three. So we thought instead of taking a break, then we do it at four o'clock, which is more convenient. Anyway, after uh, listening to this for one hour, you need to, you need a break as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll take a break to pray and then we'll come back here. Um, what I would ideally like to do is to speak for some time to give you overall background of what we have to say. And then, of course, you're most welcome to ask questions uh, and I'd be happy to answer whatever I can answer. And um, we have, of course, the cutoff time at five o'clock, but we can we can end when it ends. I mean, you know, whatever is the right time. <clears throat> we are looking at in terms of um, of time. Uh, we are looking at the sixth uh, and seventh centuries A.D. We are looking at the year specific year five seventy one, which is like in the middle of these two. Um, I usually when I when I read history, I like to look at it in perspective, uh, not a particular thing by itself, but in perspective of also what was happening in the, in other parts of the world uh, at the time this was happening, you know. So, looking at the birth of uh, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, what was happening in the rest of the world at that time in, in the 6th to 7th centuries, 570. It's interesting, uh, in Asia, the Sassanid Empire in uh, what is currently Iran, 
but in those days it would be iran it would be afghanistan it would be a lot of central asia it was a huge area uh, the sasanids were at their peak peak of its power and khosrow the first was the uh, persian emperor uh, the two big empires at the of the time were the romans in the west and the persians in the east the roman empire itself had uh, almost broken into two it had been separating into two for a few centuries before that but it eventually uh, broke into almost two which was the eastern roman empire which was based out of constantinople and it was the western roman empire based out of rome um the eastern roman empire it's actually the 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 uh title given to the to the emperor was holy roman emperor and in um, in english history there was a question once which said uh please explain why the holy roman emperor was neither holy nor roman nor an emperor <laughs> so it was quite a <coughs> um the two uh, christianity also was into uh, was in uh, both were orthodox but two very different kinds of theology one was of course the catholic church as we well as we know it or as most of us know it and the other one was the eastern orthodox which was very different um the coptic is uh, church is is an outspring of that or so if you look at the um the head of the coptic church for example in uh, cairo that's where the egypt is where the head is um you would not be faulted for mistaking him to be the imam of the haram because the way he dresses if if you didn't uh, look at the big cross uh, on his uh, you know around his neck uh, he is about as close for example <laughs> to my appearance as anybody else would be he looks most uh, within quotes unchristian from the from our stereotypical uh, image of what a christian priest should look like but i mean he is the head of the church so you better believe he is a christian priest i mean <laughs> uh, it is interesting also for us to continuously reexamine our stereotypes that we have with respect to various things all of us have them some of us are conscious of them some of us are not conscious of them but uh, stereotypes are stereotypes they are they are false images and it's important to question them so khosrow was there in india the gupta empire uh, was almost overrun by the huna and it eventually ended in mid in mid uh, 6th century in japan the kofun period game gave way to what is called the asuka period and um, in china after being divided for more than 150 years the northern and southern southern dynasties uh, came together to form the sui uh, dynasty um, then in the americas you had in central america which is mexico really not up here um, up here people were probably the native americans were living a peaceful life not knowing what's around the corner but that's <laughs> that's how it was but in central america you had the uh, i'm going to try and pronounce it correctly i i learned the pronunciation on google so for, <laughs> forgive me <if> I, <laughs> uh 
Teotihuacan. That's the that's the empire. So they they were there, and then the further down was the Maya uh, civilization in Central America. Before, of course, uh, Columbus took a wrong turn and he did what he did. So, uh, uh, in Europe, the Visigoths became supreme, which means that the uh, Roman Empire was uh, on the decline. The Byzantine Empire came into its own, which was the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, the Visigoths actually uh, occupied almost all of Spain as well. And... Um, their their big king, uh, Liu Vigild, uh, he became the sole uh, emperor or, or king of the ruler of that place. In Britain, um, that's when the Anglo-Saxons came on the scene. And this is before the Norman conquest. So the Anglo-Saxons came on the scene. Uh, there was enormous amount of warfare between them and the Celts. Uh, this is one of my favorite areas of reading, so I have read a lot of books on this, <laughs> on, on, on all these wars. It's pretty uh, gory stuff, but it's it's interesting how uh, there must have been a very tough bunch of people. I mean, one of the things I see is that the kind of weather they ha- there was, and you know, the kind of food they had, and whatnot, and uh, they thrived and they survived, and they uh, what what really. Uh, impresses you is uh, the resilience of uh, these these. Uh, I, I don't like using words like primitive people because I think it's a very uh, you know looking down upon kind of word. So, but I'm saying for what do you call them? What, what is that? What's a nicer word to use than primitive people? But you know what I'm saying. So, um, so these people were uh, no really. I mean, you know, primitive means when I'm I'm putting myself and I'm superior, so they are primitive. They're not. I mean. <laughs> So, but I'm saying that they are, uh, those were people who were certainly, they, they were not overburdened with resources. So, they are, you know, a bunch of people who were in there. But yet, they were hugely, hugely resilient. Sometimes when we uh, reflect on the difficulties that uh, we are facing in the world, and I guess every every people at every time face some difficulty or the other. Um, I think back, and that's one of my reasons for reading history. I think back on times like that and I say, well, if I was living in those times, then so-called difficulties uh, today would look like a Sunday school picnic. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, even in their best times, they didn't have it as good as we, as, as, as good as we have, uh, but they managed to get out of that. In the middle of all that, a child was born and his name was Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's an interesting story if I go back uh, literally just one year before that, 571, so 570. Uh, two, um, two things happened. One was a marriage between Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib and his wife Amina. They got married. Amina was from what today we know as Medina, which was the little oasis village of Yathrib. And uh, Amina and and Abdullah uh, got married. Then two weeks after that, <coughs> the father of Abdullah, Abdul Muttalib, who was also the head of the clan of Quraysh, uh, he came and he said to Abdullah that you have to go in a trading caravan business trip to 
today what we what we know as Syria, but you know what is called Sham. So business trips are bad news, especially two years, I mean two weeks after you got married. And uh, these business trips were not business trips like we know today, obviously. So Amina was distraught. She was very, very unhappy. She was very sad that her husband is going away just two weeks after they got married. But, you know, business is business. So Abdullah left. Uh, Amina was beside herself with grief. She was very, very sad. And throughout that whole period, she had this uh, lady who was initially a slave and then she was freed. So she was really a companion and a friend. And her name was Baraka. Uh, Baraka means blessing. So her name is Baraka. She was Abyssinian. So she was Amina's constant companion throughout uh, her whole life. So Baraka was the only confidant of what was happening to Amina through this whole period. So Amina was almost sick with grief. I mean, she was almost in bed and so on. And this went on for a few weeks. And then after a few weeks, Abdul Muttalib came again. Who was Amina's father-in-law. Abdullah's her husband's father. And he said to Amina, pack up your bags and go off into the hills. <clears throat> and this is not for holidays. This is because Makkah was being attacked by uh, a king from Yemen called Abraha. He had come with an army and for the first time the Arabs had never seen this before that army had elephants in it. And he brought elephants uh, really because he wanted to destroy and demolish the Kaaba, which was the uh, house of God, the house of Allah, which was built by Abraham and his son Ismail, alayhim salam. So the Arabs had no way of fighting that army. It was just too big. And it, they had these elephants and so on and so forth. And the people of Makkah, there was no way they could fight them. So they decided to um, to run away. There's a, there's a, on a side note, there's a very interesting story. Abdul Muttalib was, they've described him, they, they described him as a very impressive man. He was, you know, very, he was a, he was a big made man. He was the head of the tribe. There was, you know, people have this persona. They have this personality. I mean, he had this enormous personality and, uh, he was very impressive as a, as a person. Now, when this army of Abraha camped, uh, on the outskirts of Makkah before they decided to attack Makkah. There were some camels, about 200 camels. The uh, soldiers of Abraha, they captured those camels. The camels belonged to Abdul Muttalib. So Abdul Muttalib went to meet uh, this king and he said, give me my camels. Then why, why have you captured my camels? So the story goes that when Abdul Muttalib was walking up to the king, the king literally stood up to welcome him because he saw this very impressive man coming to meet him. So, you know, just out of, I mean, subconsciously, uh, as a reflex action, he stood up to welcome him. He asked him to sit down. He sat down. Uh, he said, uh, who are you? He said, I'm the head of the tribe. Uh, he said, what have you come for? He said, I've come for my camels. You people have captured my camels. 
So Abraha said to him, he said, you know, I was very impressed when I saw you coming up there and I stood up to welcome you, but I'm sorry, I'm disappointed. I said, what kind of a man are you? I am here to destroy your people. I am here to destroy your house of worship. Right? And you are worried about your camels? I am here to destroy your people and your house of worship and you are worried about your camels? Abdul Muttalib said, I am the rub of my camels. He said, I am the owner of my camels. I am concerned about my camels. The owner of that house, let him look after his house. He will look after his house. He said, I am not the owner of that house. That owner of that house has an owner and that owner will take care of his house. So Abraha said, okay, take your camels. He, he ordered them to give the camels back. Abdul Muttalib took his camels and went away. And then as they say, the rest is history. The next day when they tried to attack, the elephant wouldn't move. So every time they tried to move the elephant towards Makkah, the elephant would just stop and there's no way they could move the elephant. They tried all kinds of things. They wouldn't move. When they turned him around, he would move and he'd walk back. So this, <laughs> this happened a few times over and over again and, they, and, and, they, and their animals would move forward and so on. And then they were attacked by birds. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned this in the Quran. They were attacked by birds and these birds carried uh, small pebbles in their beaks and in their feet. And then they bombarded the army with those pebbles. And the Quran says that uh, people just melted away. They, they just disintegrated. So Allah knows, you know, what the, uh, what the thing was and, and how that happened. Uh, the Quran mentions that where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alam tara kaifa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashabil feel. أَلَمْ يَجْعَلْ كَيْدَهُمْ فِي تَضْلِيلٍ وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرٌ أَبَابِيلٍ Ababil is, uh, is swifts actually, you know, the little birds, swifts, yeah. So this is, the, this is on a side note of the story. So now when, before all this happened, Abdul Muttalib came to his daughter-in-law and he said to her, leave and go away. She said, no, I am not going anywhere. So he said, the army is coming, they are going to attack. He's coming to destroy the Kaaba. She said, nothing will happen. She said, nothing will happen. They, they will not be able to attack. So, Abdul Muttalib said, how do you know? She said, I know. Yeah, I mean, she said, I know. So, um, Abdul Muttalib couldn't, uh, you know, I mean, uh, any of you who's tried to make a woman do what she doesn't want to do, you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. <clears throat> so, he did what any sensible person does, which I've been doing for the last 35 years, is say, Salaam Alaikum and go away, do your own thing. Um, so that is what he did. He left. Amina refused to move. She stayed in the same house. And of course, as we know, the rest is history. Abrahar couldn't attack, didn't attack. Then one day, Amina had a dream and she dreamt that there was a light emanating from her abdomen, illuminating the hills and valleys of Makkah. This was her dream. So she woke up and she mentioned this dream to Baraka, to her friend. And she said, this is the dream. I saw. Baraka said, my lady, you will have a child. You are pregnant, but this is a Bashara. This is a good uh, news about the kind of child that you will have, inshallah. Uh, and this light refers to what this child will do and uh, what will come as a result of this, of the birth of the child. Then Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was born and the first person to hold Muhammad in her arms, in her hands was this Barakah. Was this Abyssinian lady, the friend of his mother. 
And Rasulullah always called her Ummah. He always called her my mother throughout his, throughout his life. Um, incidentally, she is the only human being, the only person in his entire life who was with him from the minute he was born till he died. Only person. Everybody else came in between and, and left. But this Baraka, she was the only one who was with him from the day he was born till the day he died. We'll come to that in a minute. But anyway, uh, he was born and um, Abdul Muttalib came, the head of the clan, the grandfather. He took the little baby into the Kaaba. He announced to the people, there was great rejoicing that Abdul Muttalib has a grandson and he was named Muhammad. Then some news came and that news was good and bad. The good news was that the caravan from Sham from Syria had returned and the bad news was that Abdullah was not with the caravan. They asked around what happened, where happened, so on and so on. Finally they discovered, they found out that Abdullah had died. And he had died in Medina on the way back in Yathrib and he had been buried there among the uh, in the in the graveside of uh, what is called the Banu Najjar who were the uh, family of Amina because her family was from Medina and Abdullah died so uh, Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam never saw his father because his father left two weeks after his mother was married and then he never came back so he never saw his father some time passed uh, it was the custom of the Arabs, of Bakka especially, that they would send their infants into the desert to be nursed by uh, women from desert tribes. And there were two reasons for that. One was because it was a healthier atmosphere in the desert. Bakka is a valley, so we are sitting in the middle of that. There's a lot of people from everywhere coming to Makkah for pilgrimage. And uh, so you have... Like today, I mean, you have lots of coughs and colds and, you know, infections and whatnot. Uh, so people thought, keep the kids out from all this. Let them grow up in the clean desert air. So they would send them off. The second reason, which was also important, was the Arabs were very, very particular about their language. Now, Makkah, because it had people from everywhere, the language got corrupted. You, you, people had accents and they used, you know, words which were not classical Arabic. Uh, so the Arabs were very particular that the children are brought up with the correct language. So they send them off so that they learn the correct language and the, the, the people with the best knowledge of the language were the Badu, were the, uh, were, were the, were the desert Arabs. Uh, so they lend, they send them off for that reason as well. And also it was good training for the, for the children. It was obviously not very easy on the mothers to lose literally their infants, but this was their custom. Um, now, Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, usually, and then of course, they, these women, who they were paid for that. So, uh, as soon as, uh, you know, they knew somebody was born, people would come and they would collect. And they would look for, for children from infants from wealthy homes because, you know, you would get a, a good stipend, money to, to raise the child. Now, here was this orphan boy who had no father. He's, uh, he was from... Abdul Muttalib was head of the clan, but he was not very wealthy. Uh, so, nobody wanted him. 
So eventually, one last person, she said, I mean, she, she could find no one else either. So she and her husband, they said, okay, let's take this boy. I mean, you know, it's, we've come all this way. We don't want to go back empty handed. So it doesn't matter who it is. They took him and uh, Muhammad Sallallahu was brought up by Halima Saadia and her husband. And uh, she uh, nursed him along with her, uh, with him. She also nursed his uh, cousin Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, uh, his uncle actually, not cousin, his uncle Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib. Uh, so he and his uncle were, were, were milk brothers uh, from the same, from the same uh, you know, mother. He stayed in the desert for five years and then he was brought back. Um, so now he's about five or six years old. His mother decided to take him to Medina to meet her side of the family. Now, Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather, was against that. He said, you know, just this one woman and her little baby uh, going off, uh, that's 450 miles of desert between Mecca and Medina. So, he didn't like the idea, but she said, you know, use a story. She wants to do it, so she wants to do it. So, she took uh, him. And of course, Baraka was there with them. They reached Madina. She uh, she was going there to also to visit her husband's grave. So she would leave Muhammad sallam with his uncles, and she would go and spend some time at her husband's grave every day. Uh, and she was, you know, obviously very emotional, very sad, grief-stricken. Um, she stayed there for some time and then decided to come back. Now, on the way back, in a, in a, between Makkah and Medina, about halfway, in a place called Abwa, uh, she became extremely sick. I mean, became very, very sick. She had a, she had a high fever. She became delirious. Um, and in the night, one day, she called Baraka and she said to her, to her, I am dying. She said, I'm not going to make it. I'm dying. Uh, I am, I am um, entrusting my son to you. So please look after my son. And then she died. She passed away. So. Now, Baraka, literally, she buried the mother of Muhammad sallallahu uh, in that place. And um, then the caravan brought them back to, back to Makkah. Muhammad sallallahu stayed with his grandfather in his grandfather's house for two years. Two years later, the grandfather also died. And then he moved to his uncle's house, Abdul uh, Abu Talib. And he stayed with Abu Talib for the rest of his, uh, not his whole life, but until, you know, his adulthood. One of the things that was, um, as he was growing up, he was uh, unique in many ways. And I think this is something that is a source of great inspiration uh, as far as I'm concerned and from his life. Uh, generally, which is how he was unique uh, and the ways in which he was unique. Uh, 
and how that didn't fit in with the pattern of the norm of the time. And I think that's a, a key leadership lesson to learn, which is that in any time and place, we have the option of falling in line and uh, assimilating with whatever is the norm of the time, or we have the option of standing up and charting our own path. Um, Muhammad Sallallahu chose the latter. He chose to stand up and chart his own path. The outcome of that was that he was known, and this is long before prophethood, I mean, as he was growing up, as a teenager, as a, as, as a person, you know, young person. Uh, he was known for two things. He was known for these two things so remarkably that they actually gave him a name. And his name was As-Sadiqul Amin, the truthful and the trustworthy. Now, I mean, being truthful and trustworthy is one thing, but being truthful and trustworthy to the extent where, some, where people actually call you that by name <laughs> means, <laughs> means something, something remarkable. Uh, in the times of the Arabs, being truthful was a very important uh, thing also. Uh, obviously, it is important any time. But then it was very important also because most transactions were verbal. Uh, most people didn't know to read and write. So, business dealings and transactions and so on were verbal. So, if, uh, you know, like you say, a man's word is a man's, is, 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 is his bond. Um, and for the same reasons, for example, those of you who watch uh, Western movies, you know, you, if any of the old Westerns, classics, uh, if you call somebody a liar, you are a dead man. You, then you either need to be able to pull your gun very fast or Somebody's going to show I me mean, that is, that's what Hollywood wants you to believe, right? Um, and, and the reason uh, is also the same reason because you had a, you had an environment where a person's word was his bond, was his bond. And if you cannot trust somebody's word, if you, if you call somebody a liar, it means that his word can't be trusted, meaning that this person now is incapable of being dealt with. You can't do business with that person. You can't do anything because I can't trust you. So also with the Arabs, with the Arabs, you could curse them from morning till night. It didn't matter if you, unless you called somebody a liar. If you called somebody kazab or kazib, if you called somebody a liar, this was a killing, uh, a killing thing. You know, you, you, then you were inviting death because they, that is one thing that they, they absolutely didn't accept. So in that environment to be called as-sadiqul amin, the trustworthy, the truthful and the trustworthy was, uh, was an amazing, was an amazing honor and that I think uh, reflects on the kind of character that Muhammad Sallallahu had. There are many, many, many stories in the seerah, in his biography uh, of his dealings with people and so on and so forth. I won't go into all that. I'm trying to be brief to uh, touch on the, on the important points. One of the most important things which happened was that the people of Makkah, they decided to rebuild the house of God, the house of Allah, the Kaaba. It had become very dilapidated. It was almost over 3,000 years old. By the time uh, it was, it had become very dilapidated. It was kind of falling apart. So they decided to rebuild it. Um, so they demolished it. They were building it back up again. Now, uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but on one corner, there is a black meteorite, uh, meteorite stone, which is part of the, of the structure. Now that stone has significance, that stone is considered to be holy, it is 
considered to be a stone that was brought by Jibreel alayhi salam by Gabriel uh, and it is a stone on which Ibrahim alayhi salam is uh, reputed to have stood when when he used to when he was building the walls so it had it has it has a, a religious significance so now when they were building this and it was a joint project of all the tribes in Mecca it was a great honor to build the house of God again uh, when they were doing that now it came to the point of saying who will put this stone in its place so while they were building the whole thing this was fine but now you're saying who will put the stone in the place now this becomes a very uh, unique significant thing so it was a matter of saying no I must do it because I am the most significant tribe or no you must they were, somebody else says well we must do it because it's our and it became it, some altercation started it became uh, almost to the point of a fight uh, they were not they, these guys were not uh, they were all, all you know supposed to be on short fuses so they weren't the most patient people in the world and people started to draw their swords and stuff at that time somebody cooled them down and they said look we'll just wait God will decide whoever enters from here and they're looking at the entrance to that central courtyard whoever enters from here we will ask that person to uh, intervene or to decide on this arbitrate in this matter and who comes from there Muhammad so they were very happy they said, oh fantastic this is the truthful one right so he is the truthful and the trustworthy Zadikul Amin Everyone was very happy. Then they said to him, this is our dilemma. This is our situation. What must we do? So Muhammad said to them, get, get a piece of cloth. So they got you know, somebody's shawl. They brought this piece of cloth. Uh, he said, put the stone in the middle of that. He said, everyone, all the tribe's elders, you, you lift it up together. And he himself picked it and he put it into the side of the thumb. So this was a uh, you know, it was a wise thing to do. It was acceptable to everybody. Everyone got a share of the honor of, of building the Kaaba. So this was a very important thing in that. Muhammad Sallallahu's uh, occupation at that time, he was a, um, he was an agent uh, who did business on behalf of other people. Um, if we have time today or in the next session, I will also talk to you about the culture of the time and how things were happening. Uh, one of the things that struck me and the reason I wrote the second book, Sira, is the answer, uh, is the amazing similarity in terms of the culture, the political environment, the social environment, the economic environment between 6th or 7th century Makkah and our world today, right, 21st century. It's, a, it's quite amazing because we are looking at a difference uh, of uh, 14, 15 centuries and it's like looking at exactly the same thing except there is a difference of scale. So here it was one town and today it is the global environment and I will, in due course I will come to that, I will tell you why I say that and what's my evidence for saying that. But for the moment, um, Muhammad Sallallahu was, he was not a tradesman or he was not a businessman as in investing his own capital. He was a buying agent, for example, or he was a managing agent uh, for people. So he would take uh, caravans uh, north to Syria, south to Yemen, which is how the uh, Makkan uh, trade thing worked. And uh, that he got, he earned a commission from that. Now, one of the people that whose caravans he handled was the lady by the name of Khadija 
bint Khuwailid عنها, um, she was the wealthiest woman in Makkah. She was extremely wealthy. She was a businesswoman. Um, she was at that time uh, about 40 years old. Um, so a couple of years before that. She had already been married uh, twice before that. And husbands had, had passed away. So she was a, a widow. And she entrusted her goods and her her uh, stuff to Muhammad sallallahu uh, to do business and she was she sent a, a, her own agent along with the with the uh, with her goods as well and she told him to report on Muhammad's behavior وسلم, and what he did and so on and so forth and she was so impressed with uh, what happened uh, with how her he, her goods were handled how the whole transactions were done how Muhammad uh, behaved and what was reported to her by this person uh, she was so impressed with that that she proposed marriage to him. And that time he was 25 years old. And she was 40. Uh, he accepted, they got married and they remained married for 25 years after that. And uh, he, he never married anybody else. He just married her and until as long as she lived, he did not marry anyone else, which was very unusual for the time. Uh, people had multiple wives. They had uh, we'll, we'll come to all of that, the issues of women and so on and so forth. So this was it. Now, during this whole period, what another thing which was very unique and which stood out. If you look at today and say a 25-year-old man, what is his primary focus? Primary focus would be career. Primary focus would be making money. Primary focus would be uh, acquiring some property, building a house, uh, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, this would be the primary focus of any uh, 20, 20, 20 plus uh, young person. Primary focus of Muhammad Sallallahu was what? Was his own individual spirituality. His primary focus, well, he still did business, but when he was home, his primary focus was, who is God? Who is Allah? What is my connection with God? Who is the creator of the universe? So what? How does that connect with me? Does it connect with me at all? So and so is the creator of the universe. Yeah, okay. So how does it connect with me? Do I have a connection? Um, social evils in Makkan society. How do we get rid of them? What must we do with them? This was the kind of focus that he had. And in order to deal with these questions, one of the things that he would do was he would take uh, some dry rations and so on, and he would go off uh, into a cave. There was a cave called Hira uh, on one of the mountains in Makkah. And he would go and seclude himself, and he would be in this cave by himself uh, sometimes for two to three weeks at a time. That he would go off into the cave, he would be there. Now, this went on for a long time. And in the cave, he would he would meditate, he would worship. Uh, you know, he would, uh, he would do whatever he did, make zikr, mention Allah. And that is when he, at the age of 40, when he was 40 years old, he received the first revelation. It's, uh, amazing how he describes it. He said he saw a being 
on the horizon and he is sitting on top of this mountain is looking so the horizon is right across he said i saw this uh this this uh, person sitting on a throne and he had wings and his wings extended from the east to the west and he completely occupied his sight everything in the, he could only see this person sitting on this throne and obviously i mean imagine uh, and this is one of the these are one of the the many um, evidences of the truthfulness of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and one of them is this which is that when they asked him how was it he didn't say you know what i thought that's nice uh, i think this is something linked between me and no he said i was terrified he said i thought i am going mad it's a very human reaction i mean imagine what would happen if you uh, you know right i mean as they say uh, iman which is proof is to uh, say to a stone salam alaikum and if the stone says wa alaikum assalam you are still there right so <laughs> you, you 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 greet and then if you get a greeting back then what happens to you you know this is the like many times we when muslims go to the to the cemetery Uh, we say assalamu alaikum ya ahlul qubur we say peace be on you o people in the graves and my question is if you get a reply saying wa alaikum assalam peace be on you also then what happens <laughs> right so, so as long as there is no response is fine but so now here he was he saw this being <coughs> and then jibril salam came to him and muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam describes this scene he says that jibril came alayhi salam and he said to him iqra he said read bismi rabbikal ladhi khalaq in the name of the one who created everything read in the name of the one who created everything and muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam said i cannot read he was unlettered he couldn't read he said i cannot read So he said Jibril alayhi salam Gabriel hugged him and he said he hugged me so tight that I thought I am going to die Then he released me and he said again Iqra he said read Iqra bismi rabbikal ladhi khalaq read in the name of the one who created everything and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam said I cannot read So Jibril hugged him again squeezed him tight he thought he is going to die Then he said again, "Iqra, read. Bismi Rabbika al-Ladhi khalaq. In the name of the One who created everything." And Muhammad again said, "Sallallahu alaihi wasallam, I cannot read." And that was the first revelation. The first word revealed is "read." Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam came down from the mountain. and he didn't come down on the wings of angels he came like any ordinary human being he came running down the mountain he went straight to his house and he said to his wife zamiluni zamiluni he said cover me up cover me up he was shivering he had what looked like a high fever imagine there is a, this is an encounter between two different life forms between a human being and an angel and we don't know what exactly is the nature of angels so his wife khadija radhiyallahu anha she covered him up with blankets and she asked him what happened so he described to her he said she he said i think i'm going mad i think 
God will destroy me. Allah will destroy me. I think I will die. This was, this is what, ha- what has happened. What did she say to him? She said to him, have no fear. She said, have no fear. She said, Allah will not destroy you. Because you are a truthful man. You are kind to your neighbors. You are hospitable to your guests. You earn money and you use that money to help others. Allah will not destroy you. So now she she's listing things, none of which has to do with worship. And this is what I, I tell, you know, my brothers and sisters in Islam. All the things she listed are things of behavior. How do you treat other people? You're truthful, you're trustworthy, you're hospitable, you're kind, you're compassionate. You help others, you work hard, you earn the money and you spend it for the benefit of other people. Allah will not destroy you. Allah will protect you. And once he had calmed down, she took him to meet her uncle, who was a Christian monk. He was what, there wasn't a Unitarian uh, denomination at the time, but... (laughs) He is, I think, I mean, this is my interpretation. Please, please don't hold me to it. But I think probably he would be what you would call a Unitarian. <clears throat> uh, but he was a scholar. He was a monk. So she took him and she said, look, this is uh, uh, my husband. And my husband has had an experience like this. So please interpret this. I mean, what, what, what did he see? Uh, you know, what happened to him? So when Muhammad Wasallam described this whole incident... This person says, this is the one who came to Moses. He said, this is the same one who came to Musa, alayhi salam. And he said, he is a messenger of God. And he said something very strange. He said to him that, A time will come when because of this, your people will throw you out. And if I am alive, I will stand by your side. I will support you. Now for Muhammad this was a completely peculiar thing to say. Throw me out? I mean, I am the most beloved of these people. They call me a Sadiqul Amin. They call me the most truthful, the most trustworthy. They love Muhammad, Muhammad, Muhammad. They will throw me out. You sure? He said, yes. He said, yes. He said, because that is what happens to anyone who comes with this message to his people. The people reject. They did that with Moses. They did that with Jesus. They did that with Muhammad. And he said, when that happens to you, if I am alive, 
आई विल बी बायोर साइड एंड ऑफकोर्स द स्टोरी कंटिन्यूज रेवल्यूशन स्टार्टेड कमिंग मोहम्मद सल्लम वॉज ऑर्डर्ड टू फर्स्ट प्रीच टू हिज ओन फैमिली सो ही इन्वाइटेड दैम फॉर अ मील एंड वेन दे केम फॉर अ मील ही सेट टू दैम worship only the one who created you don't worship gods that you have created yourself don't worship idols don't worship gods that you have created worship the one who created you and he declared himself and he said that i am the messenger of allah and this is the message that i have received and i don't want any fee for this i am not asking you for money i am not asking you for anything i am only asking conveying the message to you and i am asking you to accept this message and all of them left they refused to eat they left now culturally to understand this because in the arab culture in the eastern culture and i guess that's more or less true for everywhere if you invite your family to come for a meal and if they just get up and walk away without eating it's a huge insult right the unions i mean you you don't you don't do that sort of stuff but they did that they did that and uh, so this continued the people who accepted islam was baraka who was there in the house uh there was khadija radhiyallahu anha his wife and there were two young boys who were there one was ali bin abi talib who was his cousin who lived with them and the other one was zaid bin haritha who was uh, uh, an arab boy uh, who had been taken as a slave and sold in makka and khadija radhiyallahu anha was presented with him by her nephew and she gave him to mama sallam and mama sallam released him and adopted him as his own son so zaid bin haritha was there these were the people who accepted islam and then among the others was the first one was abu bakar who was radhiyallahu who was the uh, closest companion and friend of muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam so these were the five or six people who accepted that message everyone else uh, rejected that message now this went on and things became you know it, it it's a uh, it it's a sort of progression of difficulty after difficulty after difficulty he was persecuted things completely changed from from being the most beloved he became the most maligned the most hated um people Uh, you know try to harm him in, in many ways they try to kill him they try to torture him uh, they uh, killed and tortured his companions i mean those who those who couldn't uh, couldn't fight back especially the women uh, especially the the slaves who were there who accepted islam they were sumaya bint khayyat radhiyallahu anha was the first martyr she was the first woman uh, she was an, again an african woman who had accepted islam and abu jahal killed her he he tortured her and when she refused to recant uh, he killed her he he also killed her husband uh, both of them men literally in front of the each other's eyes uh, so this this uh, continued and over this whole period 
what is unique is the focus of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi in his teaching which quite uncharacteristically and quite surprisingly his teaching was focus on yourself focus on yourself have sabr have patience do not fight back uh do not rebel for example there were there were four or five people who were the chieftains of makkah uh not once in that 13 year period of makkan life not once did muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam say to anybody uh take out that guy you know there are these two leaders take them out and we are done everyone else will fall in line which is something which you know even strategically you might say well it might have been a good thing to do that no he didn't do that he never told anyone to <laughs> to kill anybody or attack anybody or you know even though i mean in many cases this was well deserved but he didn't do that he didn't tell them rebel against your leaders your leaders are the cause of the problem rebel against the leaders because it's uh, it's very interesting ibn al-qayyim al-jawzi rahmatullahi one of the great scholars of islam he says that uh, people confuse the cause for the effect He said leaders are the effect leaders are not the cause is it the people are the cause of their leaders He said you get bad leaders because people are bad You cannot get good leaders out of bad people so if you are seeing some qualities in a leader which you don't like he said look in yourself you will find the same qualities look in your society you will find the same qualities if you have a leader who is greedy look in your society and see how does this society see greed do we accept greed do we are we greedy uh, or are we people who are so compassionate and and so giving yet we have a leader who is greedy he says this doesn't happen don't confuse the cause for the effect bad leaders are the result of those evils in the society So if you want to get better leaders good leaders he said focus on yourself change society change yourself and you will find good leaders will emerge because now the substrata has become has become good Now this is what Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam's preaching focused on he said focus on yourself have sabr have patience build your connection with Allah focus on what is uh, good for each other be kind be considerate be just and inshallah allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will improve your condition going forward and that was the uh, sum total of his focus for the 13 years in uh, makkah and of course this was his 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 message throughout his life but this particular time and again as i mentioned in terms of standing out and not fitting the norm what was truthfulness <coughs> trustworthiness and the second one was this which is uh the focus on the self on building character on building on, on working on our own uh manners and dealing with people what in arabic we call akhlaq uh on building relationships with each other with neighbors and so on and so forth so this is how the uh the preaching of muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam went until this time we'll take a break now it's uh 2 or 3 minutes to uh 4 o'clock and uh, then we we also have to pray so we'll we'll finish our prayers and then we'll come back for uh, the rest of the of the session inshallah 
تھینک یو ویری مچ جزاک اللہ خیر و السلام علیکم